Lord Jesus, please be with us tonight. Please prepare our hearts. Please show us things that are useful. Please give me the right words to say. Please give us responsive hearts. Amen. So Mark 4, uh, page 1006 in the Church Bibles, if you've got one of those. Last week we looked at the first half of Mark 4, the parable of the sower. This week, the four parables, four little illustrations coming straight on after that. Let me read those. Verse 21. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed, uh, sorry, whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces corn, first the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. As soon as the corn is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth, yet when planted it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the words to them, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using the parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So, last week was the parable of the sower, and I focused in particularly on verses 10 to 12. The, the bit that Jesus um, explains the negative side, I suppose, of why he's using parables. There's that recognition as he quotes Isaiah's prophecy that many, or even most of his audience, just aren't going to be able to respond. In the language of the parable of the sower, they're like seed that's fallen on the wrong kind of ground. This week should hopefully feel more positive. Mark, as he writes this gospel account, seems to have gathered together here a set of parables on a theme, following through from the seed that landed on the good soil. And I think he's looking at how that positive response happens, how that huge crop, with a yield of 30 or 60 or 100 comes to be. And to show that, he, he brings together a set of four parables, two pairs. The first two look at our side of the bargain, what we need to do as we interact with God's word. And then the second two look at the way that it bears fruit. So let's look at those two sections. First off, from verses 21 to 25, how to deal with Jesus' teaching. First thing to notice, it's still all parables. We've got a fair amount of Christ's teachings recorded in the Gospels. We, we know that he did speak and teach plainly at times, both to his immediate disciples and to outsiders. But a large chunk of his teaching, especially when there was more than just that inner circle of disciples present, a large chunk of it was in parables. 
You see that again in verses 33 and 34. And last week I suggested that part of that was because it preserved room for those who opposed Jesus to lose his message or to just not respond wholeheartedly. The seed that fell on the path or the shallow soil or among thorns. And so there's an element of judgment to his use of parables. But there's also, I think, a serious teaching point in them. They model something for us. These simple, everyday life stories and illustrations, they they carry the logic and emotional sense of Christ's message. So in verse 11 or 26 or verse 30 here, we see that Jesus reckons that he's revealing the kingdom of God in them. That is, the reality of how to interact safely with the Lord. The reality of God's character and plans and his loving rule over his people. The reality, in fact, of who Jesus is. But to get engaged with that, to make the most of it, you have to cope with these parables. I don't mean to say that they're a test or a barrier or a hurdle or or something that we have to pass in order to unveil a deeper mystery. It's not that. There have been lots of weird Gnostic cults through history who've, who've claimed deeper secrets that would transform any initiates that pierce through to them. That's not what's happening here. Jesus actually says he's revealing his secret in verse 11. He's showing them the kingdom of God. The mystery is unveiled plainly. But he also knows that just telling people things plainly doesn't make them respond. As we read through the gospel stories, we see that sometimes in his interactions with the authorities. In the same way for us, being told stuff plainly doesn't get a response. So sitting through sermons, being raised through Sunday school, reading the right Christian books, does not leave me a Christian. I need genuine heart involvement. I need to chew it over. I I need to take that image of the kingdom of God, which is beautifully revealed in Jesus, and apply it to my heart, and give it the time and the space to take root and grow and transform me. And I think that's what the parables are about. They're a chance to do that. They're illustrations to chew the cud on, to engage heart and mind in. One of the commentators I've been reading preparing for this describes the parables as an invitation to serious, persistent, perceptive faith. So not just blithely subscribing to church dogma, but steadily over the course of our lives, as we come back to these ideas, thinking on the teaching, struggling to understand the way that it fits together, seeing how it fits with us, trusting God to use it in us, It's not something to just hear. Just reading the parable isn't going to produce faith or wisdom in me, but it's an invitation to think and develop it. I think that's what he's talking about in 21 to 25. Look again at 21 and 22. Do you bring a lamp in and hide it? No, you stick it in pride of place. High up so that it illuminates everything. Because whatever's hidden is meant to be disclosed. Whatever's concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. 
It's not just, you've got the message, you might as well use it, guys. There's something more powerful here. What's being revealed? I think two things. In the context of the passage around this, what's being revealed is Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus is being revealed. That's the light. But if we're bringing that message in, if we're letting that illuminate us, then it's also us that are being revealed in contrast to him. He's the light. We're the room. And you don't get to see one without the other. I think that means that Jesus is not an academic pursuit. It's not just a theory lesson or a set of beliefs that we need to hold in our heads without worrying how it interacts with day-to-day life. And to stretch the parable a little, this lamp is not some mellow uplighter. Stick on a bit of mood music and uh, you you get enough light to see by, but enough dark to hide your flaws. It's not that. It's a bright, 100 watt light bulb. It's almost harsh. And when I switch it on, I will see the state of things. I can see the dirt on the carpet. Or the mould at the corner of the bathroom ceiling. (coughs) That stuff in the corner that I thought I'd put out of line of sight. I didn't want people to notice it. The light of Jesus isn't meant to be hidden away. It's not meant to be kept out of our lives, but if we bring it in, it will reveal the truth about us. And that could be uncomfortable. If you're not sure about that, just think on Deuteronomy 4.24. In the context of idolatry and false gods, our God is a consuming fire. He's jealous. Idols have no chance in his presence. Or read Psalm 97, that's unsettling. The Lord, the God of Israel, is a ferocious force before which mountains melt like wax. This is a light that drives out darkness. It's a purity and a holiness that reveals and destroys wickedness. It's not something to be left under the bed. If you're just exploring Christianity, you need to be aware of this. It's dangerous. You cannot get to know Jesus, this guy that Mark is talking about. You cannot see the truth of his character and authority, his goodness, his love. You can't encounter all of that without seeing yourself in stark contrast and having to deal with it. The Bible's not kidding when it talks about sin. It's not little guilty pleasures. When the Bible speaks about sin, it's absurd, shameful, pathetic corruption that is laid bare in front of the (laughs) Holy God. And if I don't want to see that and deal with it, I would need to keep Jesus covered. the, The good news, which isn't fully explored here, is that as well as revealing that darkness, Christ promises a way to heal it. A way for sin to be forgiven, like in chapter 2 of Mark, or like the leprosy in chapter 1, a way for me to be made clean. But that can't happen 
unless I first let the light reveal my need. For those of us who've been disciples for some time, we've got to remind ourselves that. If the light of Jesus isn't making me uncomfortable, if I'm not being stunned again and again by the ways that I fall short of the standard, then chances are I'm not putting the lamp in a high place in my life. Chances are I'm covering it over and blocking some of that. And that doesn't make sense. In fact, it's asking for trouble. See what Jesus is saying? Bring in the message. Illuminate your life with the gospel. Bring it into your dwelling and live under it. Know him. Work at understanding the need in your heart for him. Let him show you the way forwards. Pay Jesus careful attention. It's an open invite. Anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear. But then again in verses 24 and 25, consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured out to you and even more. There's maybe a, a bit of a marketplace feel to this. Pay with big measures and you'll receive with big measures. Or possibly temple offerings. The idea that those who honoured God by, by gladly giving back to him what they had would then be mightily blessed. Here's the same logic. The more attention you pay to Jesus, to this secret that's being revealed, the secret of the kingdom of God, the more you let it dwell in your heart, the more you meditate on it and share it in discussion at house group or with your friends and family, the more you actually engage with it and prayerfully apply gospel truths into your life, with the measure you use, and even more, it will bear fruit. God will work. I've got a bookmark here in Psalm 119. Let me read a little bit out from there, from verses 97 on. Oh, how I love your law, says the psalmist. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. What you make of that might depend on your opinion of us as elders, but valuing God's law pays off. It pays off in depth of understanding and wisdom, in delight then. God is generous. His generosity overflows. and All I need then is to be looking for that. Searching out the message, bringing it in, putting it in pride of place, thinking deeply on it. Do we do that? Do you hunger for his word day to day? Do you pray to hunger for it? Or in contrast, I shouldn't be surprised, should I, if I see little growth in my Christian life and little change in my sin-snared heart, and little development in my talents, if my prayer life and my Bible study are little too, cursory at best. With the message you use, with the measure you use, 
it will be measured to you. But there's a sharper edge to these two illustrations than that, I think. Just like the parable of the talents <laughs> elsewhere, we've got verse 25. For those who aren't responding, even what they have will be taken from them. A consequence of Christ's death and resurrection is that he is sovereign now. He will rule one way or another. Do you see the implicit warning there? How about in verse 22? The the hidden stuff will be disclosed. What is concealed will be made open. That's beginning here in this passage as Jesus reveals himself, the kingdom of God. For the moment, I can choose to ignore that. I can take the lamp and hide it and deny access to my life. Shut away the stuff that I don't want to reveal. Ultimately, though, Jesus has promised that he will return in sovereignty and power and every knee will bow. Every tongue confess he is Lord. As that's revealed and made clear, so will the state of my heart. If I refuse now to let the light of Jesus illuminate me, if I choose not to consider his words and respond, that day could be terrible. Praise God then for the free (coughs) gift of his gospel, for this invitation to know Jesus, to be made clean, to have him dwell in me. I think those first two illustrations are challenging. Verses 26 to 32 feel more encouraging, gentler. From the first two parables, we've got this challenging responsibility to consider Christ's message carefully, to bring it in, to let it illumine us, to dwell with it. But it's not our job to make it work. It's not down to my faithfulness, which is pretty lacking, or my discipline, which is fallible, or my Bible knowledge, which is honestly patchy. It's not down to my good deeds. It's not ruined by my laziness. No more so than it was a farmer's job to make his seed grow. He just had to plant it. And then whether he's sleeping or active, this seed grows, it takes shape until it's ripe and there's a full harvest. And all the farmer has to do is put the sickle to it and gather it in. These farmers have got an easy task, haven't they? Glad Ken Giles isn't here. And isn't the comparison Jesus makes amazing there? You've got verse 26, verse 30. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Such simple, humble beginnings. A seed on the ground. But by the grace of God, it grows. And then there's a valuable crop of worth to the farmer or a strong tree a refuge and a shelter in the garden like me do you see your faith as weak and frail ill informed sometimes Do do you find yourself again and again almost despairing as you look at the way that you've messed up so predictably do you find yourself asking How is this faith going to play out over the rest of my life? 10, 20, 30, 50 years. Is it going to make it? 
For me, Christian summer camps were very influential in my coming to faith. Each year I would have ten days of wonder. And I'd be recommitting to God's kingdom in that time. But at the same time, thinking, how long will this last once I'm back home? Once I'm back to school? Is my faith going to grow? This puny thing, it doesn't stand a chance. Do you recognise that? Christian, take heart. In ways that we're unlikely to spot or understand, God sees his kingdom take root and grow and form a fruitful replica of the original seed. My frail faith and incomplete understanding will grow over time and give mature, gospel-shaped heart. I've got to say, I'm beginning to see this as one of the huge blessings of being in a single church over a long period of time. 11 years now here, which is a slightly scary film. But one of the huge blessings is to see Christian friends growing like this. Often from inauspicious starts. Mysteriously in ways I can't see, yet they develop in maturity. They become more and more Christ-like. They grow in their talents and in the way that they put those talents to use, serving others. It's brilliant. I don't understand how Jesus can do that. But it's amazing. If I'm doing this stuff in verse 21 to 25, if I'm giving him pride of place in my thought life, considering his words carefully, then even in my heart, his kingdom will take root and grow. Did you notice that Mark doesn't include an explanation of these parables? But he did for the sower. I wonder if partly that's because we see it at work in the church. So in Acts, the church starts off with 120 people in a room in Jerusalem. They were fairly paltry seed, but within weeks that's grown to thousands. Or today, if we look around our churches and the people in them, we see the fruit of this. Each Christian here represents branches spreading or a new crop developing, growing towards fruition, potentially scattering more seeds out there. Or perhaps you're responsible for a ministry, maybe here in church or elsewhere. And perhaps it feels fruitless. Perhaps it feels like things are dwindling. A lot of hard work, not much progress. It can be really tough, can't it? I think maybe that's part of the context of these parables here. Yeah, the first flourish of Jesus' ministry has worn off, perhaps. And the disciples are starting to see in chapter 3, opposition rise up. What's going on? And Jesus says, look, no, this is what the kingdom of God is like. The farmer chucks the seed out, and it falls to the ground and basically dies. But that's how it bears fruit. And before too long, we've got a plentiful harvest. Or, yes, it might look like a puny mustard seed ministry now, but it'll grow, it'll become a tree, like the cross, that gives shelter to all who come to it. Take heart, then. This is the kingdom of God. He gave his son for it. He'll not let it fail. He'll meet his purposes, and they'll be glorious.
And all it takes on my part is a faithful commitment to consider his message and his son carefully. Bring that light into my heart where I live. Dwell with it and see by it. That's encouraging.